Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollection to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Mecca Jamila Sullivan. Welcome to Our Shelves, Mecca. I'm thrilled that you're joining us today. Thank you, Lucy. I'm so excited to be here. Mecca is the author of The Poetics of Difference, Queer Feminist Forms in the African Diaspora, winner of the Modern Language Association William Sanders Scarborough Prize, and the short story collection Blue Talk and Love, which won the Judith A. Markovitz Award for Fiction from Lambda Literacy. She grew up in Harlem in New York City, but today she lives in Washington, D.C., where she's Associate Professor of English at Georgetown University. Her debut novel, Big Girl, is published this month by Virago. Also, very excitingly, it's just been selected as one of the titles for BBC Radio 2's Summer Book Club series. So congratulations are in order, Mecca. It's really wonderful that people are going to be reading this fantastic novel all across the UK this summer as one of their big summer reads. Absolutely. I was so excited to hear this news and just sort of can't wait to to see this story cross the pond and in the hands of readers across the country. Well, I absolutely love the novel. I think I just mentioned to you, I found it incredibly moving, really beautifully written. And I was reading the New York Times um, uh, review, which called it an achingly beautiful coming of age novel, which really resonated with me. Um, And I think for listeners who haven't had a chance to get hold of a copy yet, have a little bit of a taste of what they're in for. Could you give us a quick sort of, you know, two to three sentence synopsis of it? Tell us the beginning of the story. Sure. Yeah. So I see this as a novel about women, about people of color, Black women in particular. And I always say it's about the paths we take across generations to make space for ourselves in the world. And what I mean by that is it's a coming of age story that follows a character named Malaya Clondon across her journey to come of age as a, you know, sort of we meet her as a young Black girl at eight years old and she grows into a big Black queer teenager. And though this is her story, it's also a larger story about race, about gender, about sexuality, about class, and sort of how we inherit ideas about who we are and the meanings of our bodies in the world, and what it takes to change some of those lineages and those inheritances to create new narratives for ourselves and for those around us. That was the most perfect synopsis I think I've ever heard. (laughs) Well done. I was thinking in particular, I was really struck by the first line in your, in your acknowledgements at the end of the book, where you said that I've been imagining this book since the moment I discovered that a big black girl's life could be something to write about. And I loved that. But I was also thinking that you're writing into what's a very brilliant and also a very important tradition here, aren't you? I was thinking of Louise Merriweather's Daddy Was a Number Runner, which was a Braga modern classic in the 1990s after it was originally published in the 70s. And I think in that original um, publication, James Baldwin pointed out that it was the sort of first of its kind. It was the story of a young black girl, a young girl living in Harlem in the 1930s. And, and you know, her, the sort of story of a young black girl had never really been thought to be worthy of telling, you know, telling about before. And actually, you know, Meriwether did that. And then obviously there's a kind of 
bigger tradition there. There's sort of Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks, which starts out when the character is, you know, a child. And more recently, Maxine Clare's Rattlebone, which is one of my favourites, which I love about a young girl growing up in a black neighbourhood in Kansas City in the 1950s. And I was just thinking, how much did you feel when you were writing this book that you were in conversation with the this kind of very important, bigger kind of genre? Oh, absolutely. Very much. And I mean, in many ways, you know, that moment that I write about in the acknowledgments, that came for me when I was a young Black girl, when I was about 11 years old. And, you know, my mother had this really sort of rich and exciting Black feminist library, small, but but really expansive in terms of the depth of the curation of this little library in our home. And so it was at that time that I was discovering people like Gwendolyn Brooks. I hadn't discovered Meriwether yet, but certainly Toni Morrison and Tazaki Shange and many others who are writing stories about Black girlhood. And it was at that time that I realized, right, that this is, you know, the experiences that I was having in my body, you know, and sort of trying to understand the relationships between this big Black girl body and all of these structures of gender and race and class around me, that that was something that people had written about, which meant that I could write about it too. And so sort of keeping that with me, I kind of grew up with a sense of this canon, you know, mm. I think of it as a pantheon in some ways. And not only has that pantheon sort of informed me as a writer, but certainly it's informed my life, right? It's sort of nourished my living as a woman, as a queer person, as a big black woman. And so the opportunity to kind of contribute to that canon is just incredible. And it's something I've always wanted to do with my life. Well, it's such a welcome addition to the canon, really, because it makes it. And I think so many of these novels, the ones that I sort of mentioned, others, they also capture a sort of moment in time, maybe a moment in the history of the city they're set in. And obviously, Big Girl does the same. It's capturing the gentrification of Harlem, isn't it, at a very kind of interesting period. And I presume, um, or maybe not, but did you draw on your own experiences of growing up there through the process of gentrification that you were seeing firsthand to inform the novel? Yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's interesting. Coming of age fiction gives us the really interesting opportunity to sort of highlight some of the the kind of intricacies and nuances of a culture in change, of a neighborhood in change, of a family in change, and of course, of a body or a life in change, right? And so, you know, Malaya is experiencing the kind of transformation and evolution of each of those sort of, you know, communities around her from the family to the neighborhood, to larger culture in the 1990s. And yeah, Harlem, for me, you know, it's, it's my hometown. Um, and yet there's always, you know, I always had a kind of complicated relationship to it because of the fact that, you know, the neighborhood was constantly in flux as I was growing up in the 1980s and 90s. And I was in flux, right? Mm-hmm. And I was sort of constantly trying to find a sense of permanence, but also, you know, more importantly, kind of stability and community in a neighborhood that's constantly changing and fighting for itself, right? And so I started to notice those sort of parallels between my adolescent fight to kind of define myself and claim myself and Harlem's fight against and through processes of gentrification to sort of retain its sense of itself and its culture. And I think in in both cases, you know, thinking about Malaya's coming of age and Harlem's resistance to gentrification, there have been victories and triumphs in both of those spaces, right? That like, you know, despite an onslaught of an external force telling you what you should or shouldn't be, there's always a kind of core of of resistance and a core of sort of self-definition that shines through. And I really wanted to kind of articulate that and, and represent that in the novel. And I also loved the sort of um, the more implicit links because you're not at all sort of, you know, uh, trying to sort of bash us over the head with this, but these implicit links there between the idea that this is a neighborhood that is traditionally a black community, but there is a lot of like white money coming into it, right? The part of the gentrification is that. And also um, Malaya is a a young black girl in a world which really um, 
values a certain ideal of like size and beauty that is kind of very much associated with with white women right kind of thin white women and she's trying to kind of fit into that and I love the way that you drew those sort of links between the two so you see the kind of you see how these sort of yeah these bigger structures that are linked to kind of capitalism and consumerism are affecting just the neighborhood but also the way that she is a body in the world right Right. Absolutely. And I mean, again, this is where a child protagonist is really helpful because, of course, they can sort of lay bare the strangeness and the kind of illogical nature of some of the things that we as adults sort of take for granted. Right. right? So Malaya is able to see, well, why is it that this is the standard of beauty when I see all of these women around me that I think are quite beautiful mm. and yet they don't seem to see that for themselves? And similarly, why is it that, you know, I can't go out and play on the street with my friends because, you know, I'm the kinds of games I'm playing are games about collecting crack vials, right? And yeah. you know, the kind of colored caps of crack vials. And yet when that changes, those changes don't seem to be for me in my neighborhood. They seem to be for the newcomers to the neighborhood, right? And so, you know, she's she's trying to sort of make sense of what is really nonsensical. And my hope is that the reader can pick up on that process, right? And sort of stick with her and see how her trajectory to kind of navigate these structures and these circumstances ends up really reflecting on on all of us in certain ways. Mm. And I think the other thing that I was really struck by while reading the book is how sort of elegantly um, you're able to draw out the importance of these um, relationships between black women in the novel, right? So both the familial ones and what you've got here is a situation here with Malaya um, and her relationship with her mother and then her mother's relationship with her mother and how this has passed down both good and bad things in the family as it does in like anyone's family, but also the wider image of how women within the black community sort of the relationships between them, between each other, right? And some of that, again, is very positive and some of it is quite negative, the way that they might judge each other about their weight and their, you know, beauty standards as well. And I love that sort of quite delicate push and pull you have in the novel where there is a sense of community, there is a sense of belonging but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is always as supportive as they can be because they've got other factors you know pushing in on them haven't they that's right and I mean it's interesting you know you mentioned sort of where the novel opens the opening scene we see Malaya at a Weight Watchers meeting yeah and she's observing she's you know eight years old and her she's there with her mother and she's observing how the women in her community connect with one another through a shared kind of sense of shame around their bodies, right? And there's a real kind of ambivalence and ambiguity there. On one hand, you know, it's this vibrant scene. They're talking about, oh, I like corn, I like pasta, right? And they're really kind of connecting in this way. And Malaya is compelled by that, right? She loves to see these women sort of enjoying one another, enjoying one another's company, again, having this sense of connectedness. And yet she's also aware that what they're connecting on is this sense of shame and guilt around them their bodies and also around sort of pleasure, right? This mm-hmm. sense of a kind of shameful indulgence and the notion of a forbidden food and what that means in terms of what else is forbidden for women who want to experience pleasure in their body. Yeah. And so this is sort of the, you know, this sets the tone for Mariah's trajectory throughout the novel as she's trying to navigate, okay, as you've said, you know, the women around me clearly care for one another. Um, and there, there are all of these really vibrant community structures, and yet there's something that feels amiss, and there are some ways in which what seems like support may not actually be as helpful as possible, at least for me, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sort of where Malaya has to kind of land, to sort of 
recognizing what to take and what to leave as she goes forward to create her own sense of possibility in her own life. Mm, absolutely. I love that. Uh, there's a particular line which I sort of I wrote down here so I can remember it. We write the call and response of woman critique as a rite of passage, mm-hmm. that invitation to a special matrilineal tradition passed down over generations like an heirloom brooch. And it's so I feel like that in itself as a line really works for me because you've got this sense that is something kind of beautiful and valued and wonderful but it's also got these kind of sharp edges right and you it can hurt you you know it's you know. that's right and I, I just think it was very it was very cleverly done very kind of elegantly put together that are really you know you've got this portrait of this of this child growing up but you've also got a portrait of the larger community and I yeah I loved it thank you so much oh, thank you <laughs> thank you yeah I mean don't we all know that right I think we've all sort of been in those rooms with women of various generations connecting on a shared sense of shame or critique of other women, right? And, you know, there, it really is a lot to sort of sit with and parse out. And that's what Malaya is really up to in this book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a real kind of, um, and I think that sort of journey of, yeah, awakening and sort of working out what, what works for her, what she wants, you know, what she wants to see in the world, what she wants to see the women around her, kind of how she wants to see them and uh, reacting to each other and kind of helping each other and how she wants to feel, you know, kind of loved and, and sort of safe in her own body, right? And actually come to terms with the fact that this is her body and it it should be celebrated and, you know, looked after, but in a way that feeds her soul as much as her stomach, I suppose. <laughs> yes, that's right. Exactly. And that they can be, you know, those things can happen at the same time, right? That like you can feed your stomach and feed your soul yeah. at but, the same time. So I will say this, yeah. reading this book made me so hungry. And there was a bit halfway Good. through where I was re- I was <laughs> I was eating a lot of chocolate and I managed to smear chocolate over one of the pages accidentally. But I thought, you know what? Malaya would like it. So it's absolutely fine. Oh my goodness. She would, she would love it. And I love it. I would, I mean, I would love nothing more, honestly, than to, you know, be at a reading signing copies and see that someone truly enjoyed the book. Oh yeah, absolutely. It made me very hungry in the best way. And I felt, (laughs) but also felt very good about eating while reading it. So there you go. I mean, then my work is done. (laughs) Fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, I hope anyone who hasn't read it, go out and buy a copy. It's absolutely wonderful. And uh, read it on the beach or at home or wherever you are this summer, basically. Um, Right. Let's get into our main questions, uh, Mecca. I'm going to ask you, first of all, to tell me about a couple of books that are currently on your nightstand, please. So, okay, one is a fantastic novel, Didn't Nobody Give a What Happened to Carlotta, (laughs) by James Hanahan. This novel came out uh, in in 2022, Mm. and it's just a phenomenal novel. It's about a Black trans woman uh, formerly incarcerated. She's sort of in and out of the carceral system in New York State. She's from New York uh, City. And, you know, it's about sort of her process of transitioning. So she has transitioned while incarcerated. And so she's coming out in several ways, right? She's, you know, she's sort of coming out of a long prison sentence um, and kind of navigating that kind of emergence, right? And navigating kind of a re-encounter with New York City, with her family, with all of the, you know, sort of people and, and places that she once knew and loved and that sustained and nurtured her. And at the same time, she's confronted with an entirely new sort of, um, a new set of new readings about her body, mm-hmm. right? And sort of navigating what it means to come out as trans as you're coming out of imprisonment. And it's just, you know, gorgeous. This character, you will just fall in love with this character from the very first page. You're rooting for this character in a way that it's, it's really masterful the way that Hannah Ham handles this, right? Because it's sort of, you know, whether you have experiences of gender marginalization or incarceration or you know, sort of that that sense of revisiting, you know, sort of spaces that were once known to you that are now unfamiliar. 
the, the character herself just pulls you in and you, you feel all of that right alongside her. And it becomes, in my mind, a very much a kind of, I don't know that he would think of it as a feminist project, but I certainly think that the character I, I see as a kind of feminist hero, because she really requires us to think differently about gender and about the entire world, right, through this experience of, again, emergence that she's having. It's just fantastic. And I can't say enough about that now. I'm so looking forward to reading it. You are just completely coincidentally with the second person recently who's recommended right? his work to me. And now this yeah. makes me, you know, when you get you want someone says something and you think, yes. okay, second person says something and you think, I've got to check this out. So yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, it's interesting. I had the opportunity to be in conversation with him around Big Girl a mm-hmm. couple of weeks ago. And so I was on the road. And so I was going back and forth between the hardcover and the audiobook. And for audiobook lovers, Absolutely, this is one to check out because he performs along with a phenomenal actor, Black trans woman actor, who does some of the speaking parts and first person parts of the of the main character. So it's just and he, you know, I think he co-directed the audiobook production. So you're in for a treat if you're an audiobook listener. This is absolutely one. That sounds really and sort of different to normal audiobooks read by just one person, right? It sounds like a more production. Okay, maybe I'll check out the audiobook in that case. I I say do it. I I enjoy kind of going back and forth between both. To me, that was just truly, because formally what's happening in terms of there's a shifting narrator, there's a lot that's really sort of rich and interesting happening on the page as well. Okay. And so it's just very cool to see how that's interpreted in a more kind of performative mode in the audiobook. Wonderful. Brilliant. And what's your second book? So the other is Feeling by Bettina Judd, who is a poet, a visual artist, and an academic, a literary scholar. And this book really sort of brings together each of the different perspectives that she embodies as a writer. And I just love it so much. So Bettina Judd, you know, again, the the book really reflects all of the different genres that she writes in. And she's thinking about Black women writers and artists, sort of Black women's creativity and the politics of pleasure. I don't know that she'd put that fine a point on it, but certainly this is what I'm taking from it. She's thinking about how pleasure is central to the creative process for Black women writers. And of course, this is a way of thinking more broadly about sort of the place of pleasure in creativity and also in critical and political critique. So sort of dismantling the notion that the kind of sensory and the bodily are separate from the intellectual and are separate from the creative, right? She's sort of showing us how all of these work together and that we need to sort of think of them as in conversation with one another to get the most out of these artists' work. So she's thinking okay. about poets like Lucille Clifton. She's thinking about visual artists like Betty Saar. She's thinking about, um, you know, several musicians. And it's just truly this wonderful kind of hybrid you know, really complex, interesting hybrid text that really shows us the complexity and multiplicity of Black women's art and creative production, but also the complexity and multiplicity of our inner lives. And that's something that, you know, she sort of sustains throughout this really rich, interesting piece. It's just, you know, highly recommended. There's so much to think about there. It's one that I would recommend sort of reading and then bringing it to your book club or talking about it Mm -hmm. with others, right? So she really sort of like sit down and parse through everything that's there. Mm, How wonderful. I was thinking at first of asking whether this was a sort of indicative of your wider reading, these two books that you're bringing together, sort of fiction on one side and a more academic book on the other. But then listening to you talk about it, it sounds very much like you are someone who really likes these things to sort of cross-pollinate and kind of influence each other, right? You're not always thinking this with my academic hat on, this with my fiction writer hat on. Would that be correct? That is 100% correct. And in many ways, this is sort of, you know, when I decided to go into academia, I went in with that perspective Mm -hmm. that I was going to really, 
you know, I knew that in order to sustain an academic career, it needed to be something that spoke to my creative mind right. in a way. And I needed to contribute something that, you know, connected to my my investment in those writers that we, you know, that we were just talking about that I discovered way back when, when I was this little girl. Mm-hmm. And it's always important to me to think about how most of those writers also write in multiple genres, right? Or writing essays that we later take up as theory. Audre Lorde is a great example, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, and are writing poems and also stories and plays, right? And so, you know, really kind of trying to question those those distinctions between different forms of intellectual engagement, that's really important to me. I think fiction is as, you know, sort of powerful a critical tool as literary theory. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, Judd in this text is kind of doing all of the above and I just I'm here for it, as the kids say. Sounds like yeah, a perfect way to put it, really. Um, on that yeah. point, I know this is a very sort of um, a very basic question, but when you're writing fiction, do you have do you have to sort of set yourself certain times aside from your academic work, or do you let it sort of you know do you let the sort of different things interleave in the in your day? How does it work for you a sort of writing day? Yeah, that's a great question. It has really varied over the course of my writing life. You know, it really. Because, you know, my academic engagement has been sort of structurally the kind of centerpiece of my life for the last, you know, several years, Mm -hmm. I have had to kind of carve out time to focus on my fiction. When I was working on the short story collection, that was, that looked a little bit differently because, of course, short stories are a bit more finite, right? So I could sort of pick up, you know, a weekend and say, okay, I'm going to, you know, dive back into this story and sort of be in that world for you know, a couple of days or, you know, maybe if I could carve out a week uh, and then I could just sort of get right back to whatever courses I was teaching or the exam, you know, I was in graduate school working on my PhD. So I was taking exams and that kind of thing. With the novel, it was a little bit more challenging only because I felt that I needed a larger chunk of time Mm. most often to really, you know, for me as a novelist, I really needed to sort of live in the world of the novel. And so that would require certainly more than a weekend usually, you know, about a week at a minimum, but, you know, the summers were a great time for that. And then I got to sort of live as this creative writer. Um, but, you know, in terms of the, the the intellectual part of it, the kind of the way that my mind was working on both of these kinds of writing, there really isn't that much of a difference mm-hmm. because, you know, it's important to me to see them as honestly both critical and both creative, yeah. right? That like, you know, you want to be sort of adding something to a conversation, even in your critical writing. And for me, in my creative writing, I'm definitely, you know, sort of thinking about a kind of a, a commentary on or a kind of critical engagement with the worlds that my characters have. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And I think the more you, it's really interesting just talking today as well, thinking about what you're interested in, sort of critically, um, sort of theoretically as an academic and seeing these various things, how they've been, how you've woven them into your fiction, which is, I think, really fascinating. Um, Next up, something a little bit different. I think you're going to tell me about a particular song that's been on your mind recently. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. So the song is called The Glow of Love. It's by Change, featuring Luther Vandross. And probably many listeners will recall it came out in 1980. You know, it's his, Luther Vandross's voice is very sort of salient in the song. So it sort of, you know, (laughs) feels to me like a Luther song, you know. And yeah, it's been on my mind a lot. um, Partly because I'm thinking a lot about queer histories and, you know, LGBTQI plus histories, what it means in 2023 to kind of go on a search for sort of resonances or echoes or traces of queerness that weren't necessarily spoken or, you know, explicit, um, but that sort of did the have done the work of community building of, you know, sort of queer 
um, kind of, yeah, of queer community building and they've done the work of kind of queer, I don't want to say representation, right, but sort of creating queer presences right. in history. Yeah. And Luther is a figure that I think has, has been read in that way. And of course, again, it's not named explicitly, although very recently I saw an interesting um, interview with one of his contemporaries who sort of quickly mentioned, oh, right, Luther is one of those folks who wasn't able to be out. And I'm, I'm very curious about how that's going to go as we go forward, you know, whether we're going to start seeing more and more um, sort of serious scholarly inquiries into these queer presences that are, again, inexplicit, but at least for, for contemporary queer folks, right? Mm. Like we need figures like that. We need to be able to look back at figures like that and sort of understand that there is a history for all of our conversations that we're having now about feminism, about its relationships to queerness, about gender, about sexuality. And this song in particular is one that I'm thinking about a lot because I've been, I've been writing, I'm working on an essay about naming Big Girl as a queer novel and why that's important to me. Okay. And so I've been sort of listening to Luther Vandross a lot as I'm thinking about that. First of all, he's just sort of has come up quite a bit in my my life lately. Like he's, I'm just hearing a lot of his music and this song I keep hearing over and over again. Um, and there are a couple of lines in this song that I think really sort of uh, connect with that idea of, you know, what it means to, to feel a queer presence or even to feel a feminist presence, even when you're talking to or in conversation with an artist who doesn't sort of claim a queer or feminist identity, mm. right? That that's meaningful and important as well. Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking while you're talking as well about the sort of role of music in Big Girl, because it's not, I wouldn't say it's a sort of, you know, a really prominent theme, but there obviously are, it is, it is a, like, you know, Malaya, what she's listening to at certain points does, you know, is, is clearly chosen to kind of represent something or to kind of speak to broader things. Like, could you talk a little bit about that maybe briefly? Yes. Absolutely. And I'm glad you asked because, yeah, I mean, I do think of music as a prominent theme in Big Girl. And in some ways, you know, music for Malaya does just the work that this song does as, as I'm sort of thinking through it, right? That, you know, it, it gives her a sense of community. It gives her a sense that she is not alone. Well, she and her, her father bond over it as well, don't they, over certain songs and certain uh, artists? Right? Absolutely. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. And so Malaya is a hip hop head, right? She's a black girl coming up in the 1990s. But of course, those who are familiar with hip hop, one of the major features of the kind of commercialization of hip hop in the 90s is that it's constantly borrowing from music of the 70s mm -hmm. and 80s. And so that sort of culture of sampling really does connect Malaya and her father. But even before then, right, yes, yeah, she connects with her father through music and it helps her to kind of access a bodily pleasure that's not forbidden, right? Music is allowed, the pleasure that she experiences with music is, is allowed and it, it gives mm -hmm. her a sense of possibility for freedom in the body and then hip-hop comes along and it gives her this sense of like the subversive possibilities of that right what does it mean when we've got you know artists who are talking explicitly about women's sexuality and sexual desire what does it mean when we've got a fat artist like the notorious big who's claiming his sexiness right this these are things that malaya is able to sort of take in and again though they are not explicitly queer or feminist critiques yeah they do something for her that she needs as a black queer woman and as a fat black queer woman. So yes, and yeah. of course, I'm thinking now. I'm now you're again now you're talking. I'm thinking of all these moments that I've forgotten in the novel where the music is. I mean, there's. A, I don't want to give anything away, but there's that very special dance scene that happens yes, in the bar, right. right? Which is so, which yes. obviously is hugely important. So actually, yes, okay. 
prominent theme. Let's actually call it a prominent theme. I think so. I suppose I'm sort of, I'm definitely showing up my lack of knowledge about music in general, let alone like hip hop in the 90s, I will say. But I love even those bits in the novel where you talk about the way that the white kids at school are trying to appropriate it and kind of guess it. And like, because that sure. all her friends are kind of there. Music is something that bonds them as well, isn't it? Absolutely. So she goes to an elite, uh, predominantly white high school mm-hmm. on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, which is very kind of, you know, wealthy, elite white neighborhood. And so there are all of these kids from the outer boroughs and from Harlem who are sort of bust in or take the train in. And they, again, they have to create a sense of community. Now, mind you, these are kids from various backgrounds, various, you know, sort yeah. of home situations. And, and, you know, when they, in that moment of sort of connection in the school, what they have in common is truly that they are outsiders, mm-hmm. right? Which, you know, is a necessary sort of kind of community. And at the same time, then the work begins of building deeper bonds, right? Building bonds that are not about whiteness, but about them and what they, you know, what they share and what they need and what they can offer one another. So hip hop absolutely comes in as sort of their territory, right? It helps them sort of forge their connections while they are, as, you know, young people do, sort of figuring things out in terms of sexuality and in terms of gender and in terms of class and the body in general. Yeah. So hip hop sort of helps them. It's, you know, it's a kind of a, it's a space for for bonding and for really complex social critical critique as well for these kids. Oh, shall we be back in just a moment. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I'm talking to Becca Jamila Sullivan about uh, music being a prominent theme in her wonderful novel, Big Girl. Next up, Mecca, could you tell me about the book that has made you think about feminism in a new way? Um, I mean, so many. This is the hardest question. <laughs> <laughs> I know we like to make them a little bit hard, and it's true. The idea of picking just one for some of these is very hard. Is is, is a tough job. It is. It is, but it's a, it's an exciting challenge. So I, you know, I'm thinking about Entezaki Shange's uh, A Daughter's Geography. This is, it's even, it's difficult to even sort of describe this text. It came out, the, the, the poetry collection version was published in 1983. But before then, there were several sort of poems, there were performances. Entezaki Shange is a really important Black American feminist writer who writes, as we've been saying, in multiple genres, right? And so this is part of why I love her. She's one of those writers who I discovered very early. Um, and in fact, it was her, well, two texts. She's best known for her Korea poem is the, the genre that she sort of invents. And it's called For Colored Girls Who Have Considered Suicide When the Rainbow Is Enough. Came out in, in the mid-70s. That's her sort of best known work. But she also is this prolific novelist, poet, playwright, essayist. And A Daughter's Geography is another one of these texts that kind of brings a bunch of different forms together. Mm-hmm. Part of why this help, helped me to think about feminism differently is because it's also very much a kind of global, I don't even want to call it a story, but it's a global sort of exploration of women's voices, women's bodies, and the connections between the politics of the body, the politics of sort of you know gender and gendered life, and global politics. 
So there are these incredible moments where she's sort of drawing parallels between, you know, a woman's experience of sexual violence and larger, you know, sort of colonial and decolonial struggles in the Caribbean and in South America, or a woman's story of heartbreak and systemic kind of cultural violences in, you know, in the UK and sort of, you know, and beyond, right? Mm -hmm. So there this constant sense that you cannot separate the personal from the political, which of course is this important feminist tenet that we're all familiar with. Shange in this text really brings that to us uh, sort of up close, you know, sort of invites us into those stories. And we see those larger political resonances, not only on a kind of local level, but on a truly global level. I mean, even in the title, right, we sort of get right that this is, it's a geography. It is truly a kind of glo- a kind of an understanding or analysis of a global worldview, mm. but it's located in this sort of feminist ethos of the personal and personal connections and personal lineages. So it's just gorgeous. She's one of these writers for whom, you know, I think we really, we need everything that she wrote and we need it now. We'll always need it. Right. And so I like to sort of go come back to her work yeah, yeah. and sort of revisit, especially some of the kind of lesser known texts of hers. Mm. Well, that's the thing that you say. I mean, you're completely right. Obviously, we're very, um, today we're sort of more used to this idea of these texts that sort of cross boundaries and this way that, you know, the personal is the political. But when she was writing originally, I mean, it was very, very radical stuff right at the time. Absolutely. And unfortunately, I think it is still radical in many ways. Right. I mean, you know, there's this interesting way in which I think there's we we recognize that the personal is political and we recognize, you know, that's a phrase that I think a lot of people Mm. say, yeah, of course, that's true. But maybe we don't think think, through always. Right. Like, sure. And what does that mean to us? Right. And I think literature helps us understand what that means in a life. You know what I mean? And what that could mean in our lives. You know, so I think for me, it's important to really sort of go back to the text on which that that phrase was really built and kind of you know reconnect with what that could mean for these characters for these poetic speakers and what that might mean for us mm. i just want to go back to something you mentioned earlier you said that you, when you were growing up was it your mother's library and you kind of read books and i was wondering was um was she someone you kind of came across in your mother's library or could you tell me a little bit more about what were the books that you were sort of drawn to and what age were you were you reading these yeah. and discovering these for the first time Absolutely. So I was 11 years old. I remember it like it was yesterday. Was, <laughs> Very you know, oh yeah. Well, you know, the fifth grade, right? It's so funny. You know, I used to you speak with a lot of writers. I imagine, you know, I have noticed that that time, fourth grade, mm. fifth grade, it's, it often stands out for a lot of writers. Um, you know, for, you know, in the U.S., that's like, again, 10, 11 years old, you know, maybe even up to 12. But it's this formative time where you're starting to recognize that the way you see yourself is not necessarily the same as the way everyone else sees you. Right. And, you know, there there's a sense of looking for, again, connection, community, some kind of context for that. Like, what is this, right? What's going on? And literature provides that. And so for me, it was coming-of-age fiction by Black women writers. So, you know, Enzizaki Shange's For Colored Girls, I also later discovered, actually, at my grandmother's home. I mean, I was very fortunate to come from a kind of tradition of artists and, and readers. You know, my grandmother had a copy of Shange's novel, Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo, which is also a kind of coming of age novel yeah. about these three sisters that are kind of creating all of this magic together as they're discovering what their race and gender and class mean in the world around them. Mm-hmm. Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye was another one. Um, Jamaica Kincaid's Annie John, and then very shortly after Lucy, mm-hmm. you know, sort of all of these stories about Black girls going through things that were similar to what I was experiencing, but different enough that I found still this sense of a need. And for me, the need was 
a lot of my coming of age experience really did center around the meanings of the size of my body and the notion that my body was wrong, not only because it was a girl's body, whatever that meant, but almost because it wasn't a girl's body in the right way, right? Because of, because of its size. And so I felt on one hand, this, you know, real sense of kind of relief and, and joy, honestly, to see a community of literary voices that are talking about these things that meant so much to me and that I was really trying very hard to figure out. And also I found a sense of a kind of a need to contribute something to this conversation. And for me, that's where Big Girl, you know, was born. That's so fascinating. Did you feel it back then as well? Did you feel like this is something I want to engage in? I want to kind of be a part of this? A hundred percent. And I really owe that to my teachers, I think, who really kind of helped me to be very audacious as a little girl, <laughs> you know, like just like, yeah, okay, Toni Morrison can be a writer. I'm going to be a writer, right? And there was sort of no, you know, my teachers and of course my parents, mm-hmm. right? That, you know, I was I was encouraged to dream big at that age, um, even as I was having all of these other experiences that really, you know, did in some ways um, challenge my sense of possibility. Yeah. Right. There was always this sort of, you know, a competing set of voices that said, there's no reason why you couldn't create this. And so, yeah, it truly was one of my first sort of major sort of, you know, life changing realizations that, you know, you can write about big Black girlhood or Black girlhood, that this is something that can sort of meet a standard of sort of literary importance and that I could spend my life doing that, that that is a thing that one could do for the rest of one's life. It was truly, you know, it was a game changer for me and definitely set my sort of course pretty early on. How lovely. Well, I think your answer to the next question is probably going to sort of feed into this conversation more generally, because the next question is, tell us about a woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire. And it's an author that you've mentioned already, I think, on this podcast a little bit. So tell me about your answer. I'm an uh, an official Audre Lorde stan. I, (laughs) you know, I talk about her all the time. She comes up on this podcast so often. It's really interesting. Like so many people. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I think there are a lot of reasons, and I think we've touched on some of them, right? That she, first of all, she is someone who, again, sort of, she communicates what she has to say about power and gender and difference in so many different languages. Mm -hmm. And by that, I just mean in many genres, she sort of, she, you know, she appeals to many audiences because whether you are somebody who reads essays or, and theory, or you're someone who loves poetry, or you're someone who's interested in novels, right? she there's some she's communicated what she has to say in a form that will speak to you right so there's that and also you know i i love the the kind of the way we're thinking about you know a a a figure who is an important feminist figure for me that importance is so kind of multifarious right like she's not only thinking about feminism as a kind of um an orientation toward critical perceptions of gender, right? Mm -hmm. She's thinking about it as constantly connected to race, to class, to sexuality, and so much more, right? And this is why Lord is evergreen in my view, right? That like, you know, in the 1970s, she's including fatness in her sort of, in what we now might think of as an intersectional critique. The term intersectionality didn't even exist at that time, right? But she's doing Fatness, that's right, disability. And even in the way the, the question, as you were saying, kind of, you know, a, a a woman or a kind of gender expansive person, right? We might think of Audre Lorde is, is thinking about gender in really complex ways before we even have a language for gender expansive or transness, right? She's thinking about what it means to think of oneself as both man and woman, right? She's thinking about how 
the distinctions between the masculine and the feminine are infinitely more complex than we have language for. And she's really working to create new language to kind of describe these things. And so I, you know, I find her to be very powerful um, for those reasons. And again, the fact that she's doing all of this in all of these different forms. So it's almost like you sort of, you can't miss Lord unless you try, you know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, you know? based on what your answer just said, I can't see how anyone could ever choose anyone but her for this question. I, <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> I agree. I agree. 100%. Can I ask you, I don't know if you remember this, but do you have a moment of recollection of the first time you read her work or the first time that you read it and it really made an impression on you? Yeah. Okay. So it's really interesting. Um, so the first time that I read her work, it was probably, I don't have a kind of precise recollection. Mm-hmm. But my mother took me to the memorial for her. So we actually, I actually grew up on the same block that she lived on as a child. Oh, wow. Many years later. Yeah. And so she went to school at the Catholic school right around the corner where my mother took me to church sometimes. It wasn't our sort of main church, but this is where I had my first communion and all of these things. And so they had the, that church had a memorial for her shortly after her passing, actually. And my mother took me to that memorial. And I remember the kind of, you know, vague, vague memories. I remember sort of the experience of going to a memorial for somebody who I didn't know personally, mm. but I knew was someone important. Right. Um, and so I can only imagine there was probably some of her poetry shared there. Many, many, many years later, honestly, um, I went, when I was an undergraduate, my a professor who's a dear friend of mine, Kevin Quashi, who's also a fantastic writer who everyone should read. Um, he it was a course on gender in African American literature, and we read Zami, and that which is her biomythography, right? She calls it a biomythography. It's again this kind of mixed genre, you know, self writing, sort of like a memoir, but it includes poetry mm-hmm. and song lyrics and several other forms, and that really just sort of blew my mind. That's when I realized the kind of depth of the complexity of her her social critique, her critique of gender. That's when I realized that fatness, disability even, right, become very important in her writing. And, you know, again, this is the very, the early 1980s. And yet these sort of very kind of sophisticated conversations about, again, what we now think of as intersectionality, they're happening in creative prose, right? Which is sort of mind blowing to me. I also then learned that I'd gone to the high school that she graduated from and had no idea, which was sort of, (laughs) Was she not, and not even was close it, to They didn't home, mention right, it at school? From, like, was she sort of brought up at school? They, no, I, not in my experience, okay. you know, which is just truly, yeah. I think that that has been corrected now. Okay. Uh, you okay. know, I think that folks are yeah, sort of recognizing that she is, she needs to be at the very top of the notable alum. I was going to uh, say, that would be know. like your selling point for the school, right? Like that she, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's so funny. I got to give their convocation address last week. Oh, how lovely. And, it was truly a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, you know, she also went to Hunter College. And so so the, the school is Hunter College High School. Lord also went on to go to Hunter College. Mm-hmm. And the college actually has just named the intersection that it sits at as Audre Lorde Way. Oh, so wow, I do lovely. think that there is, yeah, yeah, there's a kind of, you know, a real effort to really sort of acknowledge that tremendous legacy. Um, and it was, of course, wonderful to be part of that. And I had to give several Lord shout outs during my speech, as I do everywhere <laughs> I go. Part of it is that, again, we really need her. You yeah. know, it's a voice that we really need. And as a writer, I really want, because literature has given me so much that I need as a thinker and as a person, uh, I always feel like I want to introduce readers to those folks who will do the same for them. And for me, she's absolutely one of those. That's beautifully put, beautifully put. Um, and finally, our last question today 
uh, as our listeners and probably you know, it's Virago's 50th anniversary this year. So we've added a little question to um, the podcast about what Virago book would you recommend to others of all of the texts? Again, it's quite a hard one, I, I expect, to choose. But... Yes, this, yes, this too was definitely a hard one. I decided to, you know, sort of go with the what I find to be maybe a, a particularly urgent text right mm-hmm. now. And that's Gail Jones's Butter. Um, urgent because it's new Gail Jones, yeah. which is just so exciting for all of us, right? Um, and of course, you know, with Palmares, I mean, we've, we've had this incredible sort of gift of new work from Gail Jones in That's the last couple of years. It's truly wonderful. So I sort of, you know, I feel that everyone needs to sort of go go out and treat yourself to some Gail Jones. But Butter particularly, I really like because, um, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of Jones's short stories. Mm. And you know, I mean, her novels are incredible as well. And I and I just feel that the short stories, I want everyone to go and read her shorter works because right. in some ways they give us these whole worlds, these sort of deeply um, interior, very nuanced, rich, very sensual, you know, inner worlds of, of her characters. Mm. And in these sort of really interesting snippets, right? So Butter is a novella, it's novella stories and fragments. And the, honestly, to me, the fragments are just like, they're, again, they're whole worlds unto themselves, right? Jones has this incredible history uh, or, you know, sort of, um, yeah, I guess I, that's all I can say. She's got this in, incredible history. She's given us this incredible history of, you know, Black women's experiences of gender, of the body, you know, in this global context or these global contexts, right? She's doing so much with sort of the meanings of Black women truly in the world. And, you know, as much as we get those from her incredible sort of, you know, rich, huge novels like her novels are big in all the ways you know what i mean we also get those those same kinds of takeaways from these little fragments these little sort of blips these glimpses into these characters lives and the complexities of these characters lives you know again these are her narratives especially i love her child narrators you just sort of fall in love with them you care for them so much and you see the the injustices but also the kind of delights of the world and the kind of the the kind of private delights of the world through her characters' eyes in ways that I just find totally irresistible. I want everyone to go out and read Butter. I think she's such an interesting writer for all the reasons you mentioned, but also I think it is very rare to find someone who can do both the really bigger picture novels. I mean, something like Palmeiras is so huge, and it's just you know you you sort of fall into that book and you're in it for such a long. And it's so immersive in this incredible sort of historical fiction, and then the idea that you can do, like you say, she can do a short story and still invite you into this entire world, and it's as real to you, right, in that sort of short space. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the inverse is true of her as well, that even in these big sweeping epic novels, we also still get that sort of up close sense yeah. of yeah. each moment and the character's experience at each moment. I think that also has to do with, again, her attention to the body, mm. right? We sort of are feeling with her characters, which is hard to sustain even for, you know, kind of a brief novel, let alone a kind of epic novel like the kind that she writes. Yeah, so, actually, now you yeah. say it, it's sort of, she is very into the, the bodily experience is something that really comes yes. across in her text, isn't it? It's kind of yes. that idea of being in the body and what happens to the body and how as a body, these people relate to the world, not just as a kind of consciousness, right? That's right. And yet we don't, we don't sacrifice either. You yeah, know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, we still get the other. You know, we still get the other, which is, is hard to do. And of course, especially representing Black women or other underrepresented people, that sense that we can be, embodied and intellectual at the same time, right? That we can have, you know, complex bodily lives, we can have desires, we can experience traumas, and we can also have these sort of like complex relationships to pleasure, to joy, to desire. 
right? And that both of those things coexist. These are, this is another one of those things that shouldn't be radical and revolutionary, but I think it absolutely is. And she does that so palpably for the reader. Mm. I always remember the first time I read um, Corregidora and it's just yes. so that, again, it was a sort of un- unexpected kind of power of the text and this idea of the sort of like the multiplicities of like of, of the lived experience, right? As it, right. the intellectual lived experience, the bodily lived experience and sort of setting up expectations that maybe I had or kind of and 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 sort of pushing them down but in ways that were really interesting and making me rethink the way that I thought about these characters and kind of you know and I I think she's an incredible writer and and it's been it's been so wonderful seeing this sort of renaissance of her work recently right like that's been really amazing yeah it really I mean it feels like a gift you know it's sort of like for those of us who are you know Gail Jones nerds it's sort of like this just true wealth of new material from her it's so exciting as a as a as a self-confessed gail jones nerd were you i'm assuming you were well aware of her work before this kind of recent interest in her has sort of become a bit more mainstream perhaps i was and you know i was fortunate enough to come across her work i think the first time i came across her work was probably also as an undergrad it might even have been in that same class and it was corregidora um, and then shortly after Eva's man, mm. you know, and so, but even still, I mean, that was, you know, this, that was probably my first year as an undergrad. I really wish that she had been, you know, someone I knew about far earlier, right? Because I think her work, she's one of these writers who you can do, you can come back to anything that she's written, whether it's a two page story or an 800 page novel, you can come back to it at several times throughout your life mm-hmm. and get something new from it each time. So I do wish I had kind of discovered her earlier, but at the same time, you know, I'm just glad that folks are, you know, that more and more people are reading her and are engaging in her work now. Yeah, I think so. I mean, when I say sort of mainstream earlier, I was thinking that I don't think many people in the UK were very, it, like, really knew about her work until the resurgence recently. I, I, it, well, also, she hadn't she hadn't written for quite a long time as well. So there had been quite a gap between it, hadn't there? So, yeah, right. And that's why, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I really appreciate being a teacher, you know, because then you get to sort of decide, OK, <laughs> yes, people are going to be reading Corregidora because I'm putting it on the syllabus. Right. Yeah. And I do think in the U.S., at least this has been I think a lot of folks have first encountered Jones in, in a class somewhere. Right. And then they take that knowledge elsewhere. I think that's true, isn't it? I have heard other people say that to me, that it was something they read at university and then and it was considered a kind of, it was a very well-known text, but maybe more in those sort of circles than yes. just pop into your local bookshop and buy it. But, you know, yeah, but all I has changed that. now with these wonderful new editions. I know. So, and thanks, thanks to Virago, which it, is wonderful. Well, yes, thanks to Virago <laughs> very much. Um, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mecca. I hope I really enjoyed our conversation. It was brilliant. Me too. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone else, for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's wonderful guest, Mecca Jamila Sullivan, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture. Mm-hmm.